Amen. Would you turn with me, please, in your copy of God's Word to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, verses 9 through 11 is what we're looking at this morning. As we continue our trek through this book, reflecting weekly on the sufficiency and the supremacy of Jesus Christ, uh, we will see once again that everything culminates in our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 3, verses 9 through 11 says, Do not lie to one another, since you put off the old man with its evil practices and have put on the new man, who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. The title of this sermon is True Church Unity. True Church Unity. And I desire this morning, dear saints, uh, that you individually would take steps to increase the unity of Redeemer Bible Church. That you would take steps to increase the unity of Redeemer Bible Church. Praise God for the unity that we do have. It is a blessing that we experience week after week, month after month, and year after year uh, being members of this church. But we can always do more. We can always do better, certainly. I trust that you would ask the Lord how you can help in this way. Well, when the Roman Empire uh, began to take over ancient Greece, beginning way back in 200 B.C., uh, they quickly found a new problem beyond just conquering the Grecian Empire, beyond just winning wars and taking over power. There was a, there was a problem that lied beyond that. You see, Alexander the Great, uh, years, uh, uh, centuries before this, Alexander the Great had conquered such a, a huge range of land that now when the, 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 the transfer of kingdom went from Greece to Rome, it was such a vast empire that, it was, that Rome found it incredibly difficult to keep the empire together. It was a vast empire, but yet it was a fragmented empire. And Rome thought that it could obliterate all of those fragments of national, ethnic, and cultural barriers throughout the empire, the land of Rome, and consolidate everyone under one identity of Roman ideology, the Roman Empire. But eventually, Rome lost about half of the empire. And it didn't take very long. Rome lost about half of its empire that it originally had inherited from Alexander the Great, you could say. One historian and theologian wrote, the Roman Empire could not create the unity achieved through the gospel. It stood for devotion to a code, not a person. So, we ask ourselves, can we learn anything from that? What will keep us united? A common code? Uh, signing on the dotted line to be a member? Uh, just showing up on a Sunday, week after week? What will keep us united? With all of our differences, and there are many differences, I mean, my goodness, look around, right? With all of our differences, 
how does a group of people like ours maintain unity, especially over the span of decades? Because that's what we're going for. Christ, in this passage, gives us two main points of connection and unity within the local church. That we are united in truth, and we are united in Christ. Those are our two points this morning. United in truth, and united in Christ. We will see this morning how the new life that we have in Christ is manifested in the harmonious unity of a local church. First of all, we are united in truth. Verse 9 and 10, again. Do not lie to one another since you put off the old man with his evil practices and have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So what Paul is doing here, especially right at the beginning, do not lie to one another. He's, he is in one sense finishing up his list of the sins of the tongue from the previous verse. Notice verse 8. Lay them all aside, wrath, anger, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. And then connected to that is do not lie to one another. So he's, he's capping off that list, but at the same time introducing the next topic that he wants to talk about, which is unity. And Paul does this. He he addresses our unity and the importance of it and the essence of it by first reminding us that we have all put off the old man and put on the new man. We all share a common transformation. We are, in fact, more united than we think. Dear child of God, you are more united with those around you than you might think or could ever imagine. Since we are so united in this way, Christ here commands us, do not lie to one another. Why does he do that? Why, when he's emphasizing unity within a church, why is the main thing that you must make sure not to do is not lie to each other? Well, it's because lying, falsehood, is a chief and central disunifier in the church of Christ. You see, lying is a sin that has been part of God's focus for us since the Old Testament. After all, the ninth commandment says, you shall not bear false witness. Lying is so important that it got into the top ten commands of God, you could say. Well, why shouldn't we lie? Why must we not lie as the people of God? Well, first of all, it is, it, this command to not lie or to bear false witness in Exodus 20.16 as the ninth commandment finds its, its source in the reality that God is a God of truth. Numbers 23.19, God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not establish it? You see, God is not like us. He doesn't lie. That's one of the main ways that he is separate and distinct from us, is he never lies. And that tells us a lot about us. We lie so often, don't we? As a matter of fact, when we lie, uh, sinners that are marked by this are proving that they are not children of the God who is truth, but rather children of Satan, who is the father of lies. John 8:44, Jesus says, You are not, excuse me, you are of your father, the devil, 
and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. I mean, if you think about it, how did mankind fall into this, this peril of sin that we now live in? It was all introduced by a lie. How did the devil, as it were, murder mankind? How did he introduce death into the human race? He lied. So you see how destructive lying can be, can't you? I mean, right there in the, in, in the garden, in that first relationship between Adam and Eve, you see the product of lying and of sin. There's this break of fellowship between man and God and between uh, husband and wife, between Adam and Eve, to the point where Adam started blaming his wife for his sin. You see, lying has been a hallmark of the depravity and sinfulness of man for all of history. One pastor says it this way, Satan lied in deceiving Adam and Eve. Cain lied to God after murdering Abel. Abraham lied, claiming Sarah was his sister instead of his wife. Sarah lied to the three angelic visitors and to the king of Jerom. Isaac lied by denying that Rebekah was his wife. Rebekah and Isaac lied in their conspiracy to defraud Esau of his birthright. And he says, that list doesn't even get us out of Genesis. So what is forbidden in lying? Especially if you remember when we were in Exodus, we looked at the Ten Commandments. And remember that with each command, each commandment, that is, as it were, the, the watershed, that is, the, the, that is the, uh, the, the, the main point of, uh, of, of, of uh, morality. Each command is, is an individual uh, central point where from which all of these other sub-commands or sub-expectations, sub-moralities uh, flow from. And so to not bear false witness is the fountainhead, and, and there, is a, uh, there are all these streams, you could say, of commands and morality and Christian ethics that flow out of that. And you have this, these fountainheads in each command. So it's not just don't lie. The Westminster Catechism says what, what is forbidden here, what sins are forbidden in this command of do not bear false witness, do not lie. The sins that are forbidden are, it says, to violate the truth and the good name of others. Giving false witness. Giving false evidence. It is calling evil good and good evil. It is also forgery. It's also concealing the truth or just outright speaking lies. There are many forms in which a lie comes. There, there are many uh, uh, masks, you could say, that falsehood presents itself in. And as people of God, our standard for truthfulness and for not lying must be higher than the world's, right? The world tolerates lies all the time. I mean, think about it. it, it, it just, it's just written in to the assumption of our society that people lie. It's just expected. It's just what we do. Politicians lie. They make promises they know they can't keep. And so they lie. It's a half-truth. 
when we exaggerate or embellish a story, that's lying. When, uh, when a particular news media source presents the news, but it leaves out convenient truths to present you with a specific message, that's lying. Uh, when those commercials come up on TV uh, and all the promises that they present you with, you know, if you drink this can of beer, everybody's going to love you. And you'll be the most famous guy at the pool party. And there's going to be all these beautiful women around you. Just, you just got to buy this six-pack. It's, it's not the case. Or if you take this medication, all your problems will go away. And you'll find yourself at some barbecue with family without a care in the world. It's just not the truth. It's just written into the fabric of our society that we lie. So we as the church, as the people of God, should not buy into that and just assume that we lie. So what's forbidden? Lying, again, includes deception, hypocrisy, false teaching, Gossip, slander, those little white lies, dishonest exaggerations, and hiding the truth just to save face. These and many more are different ways that lies come out. But as we looked at these commandments, these Ten Commandments, we also saw that when something is forbidden, it is implied that there is something else commanded. So it's not just don't lie and you're good. It is don't lie and rather speak the truth. That's always the expectation. And when Paul says do not lie to one another, he is implicitly saying speak the truth to one another. In fact, the parallel passage of this in Ephesians 4 tells us that explicitly. Speak the truth to one another in love. So what is commanded here? As a church, instead of lying, we must preserve and promote truth in the church and in the world. We should be the best fact finders. We, as the people of God, should stand against lies and stand for the truth. We must be known as honest men and women, people that others can trust. We are commanded in Scripture to spread the truth of God from His Word into this world beginning in the household of God. We are to call evil, evil. To call sin, sin. And call what is good, good. To commend what is good. We are called to be honest and genuine to our brothers and sisters. And we are called to guard the reputation of our fellow brother and sister in Christ. Lying is such a big deal to Christ, to God, when it comes to the church. That if you remember in Acts 5, when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit, the consequence was death. That's in the New Testament, dear church. That's after the new covenant, mind you. God takes lying seriously. He takes truth seriously. Why? Because he is truth. And so when we lie in even those socially acceptable ways to one another, we are, we are going against the very nature of God himself. 
And he says, you know, the, where this comes from is the fact that you have put off the old man with his evil practices and have put on the new man, he says. This is nothing more than regeneration. The new birth. The implantation of the renewed heart in us at the point of conversion. See, the, the reason why you can tell the truth and you can not lie is because you are a new creature in Christ. What you were is not what you are, Christian. You have been made new. Christian, you've been made new. I don't, I don't think you understand what I, what I said. I didn't say you've been upgraded. I didn't say you have been given a makeover. No. God tore everything down to the foundation and built new. 2 Corinthians 5, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, new things have come. What is this newness? What is this new man? What have you put on? Well, it's Christ, isn't it? Galatians 3.27, all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. He is your new reality. You've been baptized into him. This new realm of existence. And therefore, your new identity, your new clothing what others see when they look at you is Christ himself. And this new man, he says, and Paul says uh, in verse 10, this new man is being renewed to a full knowledge. Now, this new man that you've been given, you've been clothed in, is completely real, but it's not, you could say, really complete yet. You're, you're completely new, Christian. The transformation is radical. And, and it finds its essence in the mind. You do not have the darkened mind of the past. There was a time, wasn't there, dear child of God, when you scoffed at the idea of truly knowing God. Romans 1.28 They did not see fit to acknowledge God. Or they did not see fit to have God in true, full knowledge. And therefore God gave them over to an unfit mind. To do those things which are not proper. Christian, you've been given the, the mind of Christ. You are not what you were. And, and the, the core of this is in the mind, in the inner man, your heart. You don't have a darkened mind. You don't walk in ignorance anymore. You walk this path by the light of the word of God now. What does that mean? You've been given a knowledge of the truth. You know, you know the answers to the deepest questions of the soul, dear child of God. You know the purpose of life. Think about that. Isn't the world searching for that? You know what it is. You know the reason that there is suffering in the world. You know what the end of the world will be like. It's yours. This understanding, this knowledge is yours. In the word of God. And not only this. But you have been given a full knowledge of Christ. It says in Colossians 2, 2 and 3, that your hearts may be encouraged having been held together in love, 
even unto all the wealth of the full assurance of understanding, unto the full knowledge of God's mystery, that is Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. You have been given a full knowledge of Christ, meaning you truly know him. And this wonderful new life that you live, dear saint, is this eternal pursuit of knowing the infinite God. That's yours. This new man is being renewed in that knowledge. That is, you're growing and growing in this knowledge. Your, your experience and your enjoyment, your relationship, your understanding of your Savior, of your God, becomes newer and newer, fuller and fuller as life goes on. But this new man is also being made into the image of the one who created him, he says in verse 10. It's being renewed into the image of Christ himself. Christ is the one who created, uh, who, who made all of creation. And God the Father has made everything through Christ, including that new man that you are clothed in. The Father is the creator. Christ is the image of the creator. Colossians 1.15 says, he, or who, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's talking about Jesus here. So Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. He is the visible manifestation, the perfect representation in flesh of the eternal and infinite uncreated God. Because he is God himself. He is the image of God par excellence. And so... Though we are clothed in Christ and are made new in Christ, we still have to constantly grow in this Christ-likeness, don't we? Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he will be the firstborn among many brothers. Christ the, the image of his son is what we are being conformed to. Yes, God wants you put you, he wants to put you into a mold. But the mold is Christ, the perfect man. And it would be good for you to submit to his working in your life. To let him conform you and mold you and shape you into the image of Christ. This is what the new life is about. You are being renewed according to the image of the one who created you. The one who created that new man that you are clothed in. This ongoing renewal day after day after day. And the, and the thing about this is this renewing in truth, this renewing in, uh, this growing in truth, and this growing in uh, the, the, the being images or representations or uh, growing into the likeness of Christ, that lifelong journey is, uh, is something that we all experience and are doing together, you see. This journey of constant renewal in truth and into, like, into the likeness of Christ. This journey of constant renewal is a journey that we're on together. That's why Paul says, so let us not lie to one another. Let's not tell each other that we're doing okay when we're really not. Let's be honest about our struggles. Let's not be hypocritical with each other, church. Let's be true to each other whenever we're together. When we are sinned against, let's not say, you know what, it's no big deal. It's okay. 
Rather, let us be honest and speak truth in love and talk about those sins. Why? So that we can enter into the process of confession and forgiveness and reconciliation. You see, if you're not honest, you can't get to reconciliation. You've just swept it under the rug with all the other sins. Now it's this mound of filth underneath this rug that you're trying to ignore. Let's not allow a false teaching among us. Rather, let us promote and contend for the truth beginning in the church. We are united in truth. But, uh, but just as we have been united in the truth, in an in a incredibly profound way, we have been united to one another in Christ. Colossians 3, again, verse 10 and 11. It says, You have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. See the culmination of all things in Christ there? So as we are living out our new lives in Christ, we are called to live in the unity that God has already produced in the church. And Paul roots this command in a deep and profound doctrine that he has actually been talking about and explaining in the first half of the letter. One key truth that we find repeated in the first half of Colossians is that uh, in Christ, all things are created and sustained, finds their culmination in him, and finds its purpose in him. Christ is supreme. He is uh, the firstborn, the most important one of all of creation. We see this in Colossians 1.15. Turn with me there if you would. Look at that. Just to remind yourself, Colossians 1.15 through 20 describes Christ in this wonderful hymn. It says, Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. See there, the firstborn of all creation, how everything is united in Him, the firstborn. Verse 16, In Him all things were created. So we see a, a, a union of all created things in Christ. How are they united in Christ? Well, they're all made by him, created by him, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him. And all things are united in Christ because they're all created for him. He's the purpose of creation. He's why you are here. Not only this, but 17, He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. So everything is united in Christ because everything is sustained by Him. In verse 18, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. So not just creation, but you could say, as it were, this new creation of the church. The church is united in Christ because we are the body of the head, Christ. We have him in common. And the result is he has first place in everything. First creation, you could say new creation, as it were. And in him, verse 19, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, to reconcile all things to himself. There's another uniting point in Christ. 
We're all united together in Christ. How? Because we're, we've all been reconciled to God through the same Christ, through his same sacrifice. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Here, especially in this passage, Paul has been talking about the beginning of creation, hasn't he? Especially at the beginning of this passage, verse 15 and 16 and 17. He's talking about Genesis 1 and 2. Teaching us that God made everything for the glory of Christ. The human race exists to exalt God in Christ. And this, this is a reality all the way back from the first man, Adam. That first man of creation is exactly where Paul points to in our passage. Where he says, the new man, the image of the one who created him. What Paul does in our passage, back in Colossians 3, verse 10, he uses the same wording from that original creation account. Listen to this. Then God said, Let us make man in our image. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. According to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God, listen to this, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, that sounds a lot like you have put on the new man who is being renewed to a full knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Doesn't it sound very similar? This is what Paul's doing. He's borrowing from the wording of Genesis 1 and the creation of the first man, Adam, and contrasting that with this new creation, this new Man, Christ. After all, Galatians 6 tells us that this is what we are. This, this new man that the Christian has been given is a new creation. It says there is neither, uh, excuse me, neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. There in Galatians 6, Paul tells us, you are a new creation. It's, it's Genesis over again. So, who is this new Adam? I've answered it already, but let's think about this in detail. Who, who is this, this new man? Is it us? Are we all new Adams? No. Scripture tells us there was the first man, Adam, and then there was the last Adam, Christ. 1 Corinthians 15.45 So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Why this contrast between these two Adams? These two men created by God? Well, the first Adam, the first man, Adam, is the head of the human race. The source of the human race. Likewise, Christ is described as the head of the church, the source of this new lineage, this new family, this new race. Really, there's all this talk about you know, racism and, and, and whatnot in our culture today, but 
it's not helpful to us because that's the wrong use of race. There's one race. It's the human race. There are many ethnicities and nationalities, yes, but there's one race. It's the human race. And we all find our lineage going back to Adam. And this is the, the wording that is used in 1 Peter 2, 9, where it says, but you are a chosen family. Some translations have it, a chosen race. The Greek word is genos. That's, that's what, the, what it means, race. That's where we get our understanding of a gene pool. Genos. In Christ, it is as if there is this totally new genetic line. This new human race that has been renewed after the image of the last Adam, Jesus Christ. This is, this is uh, deep and profound and, and hard to wrap our minds around, but this is exactly where Paul goes to because this is going to undergird our unity with one another in Christ. This, this foundation has to be rock solid. Why? Because if it's not, then you end up with what's called today racism. You see? The stakes are high on this. Why should, there no, why should there be no racism or better termed ethnic favoritism in the church? Well, not because it's socially unacceptable. It's because we have been made a new race in Christ. Church, you have more in common with the fellow believer across the room than, to, than two siblings have in common with each other. That's the reality. And the result is therefore there is no distinction. That's where he goes. A renewal in which, verse 11, there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. We've been given this new man and this renewal of this new man in which there is no distinction between all these different lines. Of course, we're all different. Of course, you know, we like different things. We have different convictions. We do things differently. We see things differently. We say things differently. But what he's saying here is, let us not highlight our differences. Let's minor on what's different between us and major on what we have in common. And he says, there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised. Those are major religious distinctions. Of course, ethnic also, but, but really it was a, this massive distinction between the people of God and just everybody else. And he says that difference is gone. He says there is no longer barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. These are social or cultural distinctions. Barbarians were seen as uneducated, meatheads, uh, unschooled, wild. Scythians were actually originally from uh, the tribes of, up along the northern coast of the Black Sea. They were known for terrorizing all of Asia, Asia Minor and the Middle East. Well, you could say they were terrorists. One historian says Scythians, uh, about Scythians, their name was synonymous with crudity, injustice, excess, and ferocity. Paul says, uh, if that's your past, that's, that's, you're no longer that anymore. And you shouldn't, if that's somebody else's past, you shouldn't see them that way anymore. Right? Uh, a gangbanger gets saved and comes to faith in Christ. They're a Christian. Right? They're not a. They're, that old identity is gone. He, he also says uh, 
slave and freeman. I mean, how different uh, experiences can you get, right, between a slave and a freeman? How different can you get when it comes to somebody's life and what it's just like to live? The slave's life experience is incredibly different, the polar opposite from the freeman. So what Paul is saying, even across all of these ethnic, past religious, social, and cultural differences, Paul says those differences are no more. Literally, there is no Greek and Jew and so on. There is no Greek or Jew or, or, or anything else. But Christ is all and in all. And we can have a whole sermon on that phrase right there. But this is the end of this sermon. Christ is all and in all. No more different identities, but we all have put on the one new man, Jesus Christ. You see the unity there. We all have put on one man. There's not one man for you, and then another man for you, and then another man for you. No. We all have put on the same singular one man, Jesus Christ. You see how incredibly united we are? Remember, the foundation of this is that the old you, the one who was in lineage, was uh, downstream in the lineage of the first Adam, that old you that was defined by all those differences is, de is dead. But now you have put on the new man who has his origin in the last Adam, Jesus Christ. And where the first Adam sinned and transgressed God's law, the last Adam was perfectly righteous. And where the first Adam was defeated by sin, the last Adam triumphed over sin. And where the first Adam brought death to all mankind, the last Adam brought life to our dead souls. And where the first Adam brought condemnation to all men, the last Adam provides justification to all who believe. Where the first Adam caused an infinite rift between us and God, the last Adam reconciled with God, with God reconciled us with God and brings us to him. Church, this is our Jesus. This new man, this last Adam, not the second Adam, not, not another try, but the last one. This is the one who is all and in all. What does that mean? He is all. That is, he is the culmination, the summation of us all. You put all of us together, and you got Christ. We're for Christ. We're from Christ. We live in Christ. It's all about Him. But He is in all. That is, Christ is that interconnecting tie between all of His children. We share Jesus in common. We are united in Christ. So, a few thoughts. What does that look like as we close? We need to get practical, right? What do you want me to do, Pastor? <laughs> Include one another in your conversations. Include each other in various activities throughout the week. Strive to break down those social, cultural, and familial barriers Cross those lines of differences and distinctions. Amen. Invite others to your house. Go to each other and talk about biblical things after services. Sacrifice for the good of another believer. Take opportunities to serve someone else. Go out of your way to do something good for them even. 
And as you serve in your current ministry, serve the mindset that you are serving your fellow saints. When you talk to one another, you be excited for what they're excited about. Don't highlight your differences. Again, minor on the differences, major on the commonalities. Before you come to a Sunday service, you would do well to think of something, to encu- something encouraging to say to someone when you arrive. To come ready. If, if nothing else, tell a fellow believer that you love them, that you appreciate them, and that you're praying for them. We are united in truth and in Christ. May we show it in the little things. Stand with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, oh Lord, this world around us is trying and clamoring to fabricate, to manipulate, to legislate uh, the end of racism. And every, every effort of this world, because it has fallen, will fail. But not in the church. Oh Lord, thank you that that is not a factor in the church. Forgive us if it is. Forgive us for looking at how different somebody is rather than viewing them as a fellow saint clothed with the same Jesus that I am. A fellow heir of the grace of life. A fellow believer. Another branch on the same tree. Oh Lord, I pray that you would help us to live out this unity that we already have from you. Thank you for uniting us with one another. It is a gift. It is a treasure. Oh, but Lord, you tell us we have to work hard to maintain it. So Lord, may we be diligent to preserve the unity. May we be united in truth, united in Christ. And may the watching world that is looking for this unity And all of his failures, may it look into the church and say, they seem to have figured it out. Where is this coming from? And may we be ready to tell them it's Christ. Glorify yourself, Lord Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's sing.